Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. With me today is Dr. Priti Katari. She is a child psychiatrist, and she very kindly joins us to talk about some of her observations and concerns as kids and adolescents went through the pandemic. Dr. Katari, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This is such a big topic, I'm not quite sure where even to begin. The challenges of being a pediatric mental health provider is that the patients, they're at all different levels of physical development, cognitive development, social development. Is there a major interruption that should be of concern in these developments because of the pandemic? What have you seen? What are your thoughts? an excellent question. It's a complex question because within pediatrics, we're looking at different age groups. We have preschoolers, we have elementary, middle, and high schoolers, and then we have kids from 18 to 25. You know, that kind of bridges pediatric to adolescent. The group that seems to have suffered the most clinically, at least in our demographic here in Florida, has been the middle school kids. That's a socially awkward time. It's a time when you're aware of the world and emerging with your identity, and yet the support system of school structure, friends, was devoid. We found that in third world countries or different demographics, the research shows perhaps the preschool to early elementary was devoid because those countries have far less infrastructure than we do to present education on that level. There's quite a bit. There's the educational gap. Many people talk about it. My son lost a year in math. There's the catch-up. There's the social-emotional. And then there is also the medical. And you bring up a very interesting point that perhaps too many people are too provincial. They're just looking at it in their society, but it's worldwide. What happened here, various degrees, because I don't know if in different countries they closed the schools, they didn't close the schools to the same degree that they did here. This has been a significant setback for a lot of kids as they go through normal development. So it's a very interesting point. Was this more of an interruption or a modification of their growing up processes? I feel it was more of an interruption. And will kids be able to catch up? There's a lot of trauma, and trauma is very complex. As we know in psychiatry, it comes out in odd ways and shapes and forms. It can come out years later. It's not a textbook. Trauma is complex, and it takes a tremendous amount of healing from a lot of social support systems. I'm not quite sure what catch-up means anymore as, as child psychiatrists to approach this more of acceptance as clinicians that we have a sick population of kids, sick, much sicker than what prior to COVID, we're going to have to do our darn bestest with limited resources to try to help and heal not only them, but their families. Use the word sick and give us other words. What do you mean by that? Develop socially, fearful, confused about all the politics that got involved with the pandemic. What do you see? We'll talk about age groups. When I see the elementary crowd, my assumption has been, and this is a generalization, everything's varied. A lot of those kids in the beginning of the pandemic weren't so aware of what COVID was. They knew something had changed, but some of them actually benefited with more time with mommy and daddy at home. They were under the impression that this was family bonding time. And you will hear this from certain families, minimal, not the majority, unified, enjoyed family time. Actually, there was more one-on-one care. The commute was less. Whatever it may be, they were working from home. Majority of families did not find that to be the case. 
One of the things that people ask me frequently is, how do you know when a child is acting in a manner that requires a professional intervention versus a growing spurt, a growing trend, feeling some other pressures? We hear so much about the, as you mentioned, the trauma of the pandemic. How is it manifesting itself? And when does it rise to the need of a clinical requirement? That's a confusing boundary. It's always been confusing. Families are always at a loss when they have a child with meltdowns, depression, sadness, school problems. You know, they go to counselors, they go to pediatric neurologists, developmental pediatricians. It's always been a blur, even pre-COVID, how to know. But we tend to be the end of the train for many people. Now we're more of the beginning of the train because the symptoms are so acute with self-injury and harm and safety issues that people move quickly into our offices prior to the pandemic. And you're talking about kids that are cutting? or Yes. We have children as young as seven cutting and having suicidal ideation. Now, we never saw this. And it's very painful as a clinician, and it's very hard to see a family suffer that way. But it's the truth. The OCD symptomatology came down to three. Now, we've had OCD symptoms in three and four or five-year-olds in the past, but now we're seeing a tremendous increase in that. So the age of when the symptoms traditionally occurred has shifted much younger. Have you seen similar shifts in the adolescent? The hardest group that got hit in my practice was sixth through ninth grade. That's kind of an age where you're just sort of in middle of nowhere. Middle school's never been a happy time for most people. High schoolers were more aware. They also have, especially in the upper grades, they're more, they have driver's licenses and they can move and they can shift. Elementary was less aware. Middle schools are aware, but stuck. They have less sophistication in the language and ability to express their emotions and to seek help than a high school was. That population has been the most challenging and I think the most traumatized that's the age group I'll be following longitudinally in my practice. Is there a sense that once the pandemic relaxes, we seem to be going in that direction, will there be a residue from this? Will they self-correct when the environment changes again, simply getting back to school, going to athletic events, that sort of thing? Is there a sense that it will self-correct? Probably won't self-correct. This pandemic is now two years two precious years of developmental life and the memories that are formed. We know the brain grows to about 25 or 26. So all of this will impact long-term life. As far as self-correction, we're still in the pandemic. We still have confusion. Different states have masks, school shutdowns, lack of resources. Many psychiatrists have six months to 12 months wait. People can't find the doctors. They're desperate especially pediatric psychiatrists. There's only about 6,000 board-certified pediatric psychiatrists in the United States. It's a tremendous need. Now you throw in all these kids who are on electronics, addicted, alone in their room, social media. There's a lot of talk on TikTok and all of this about self-injury. And that brings up, again, another change. Have many of these kids, and I know some of them into elementary school, are so intensely enmeshed in the social media has it reduced the socialization skills that they were challenged with because they were in school? There's tremendous loneliness. Many children went to tremendous loneliness in the pandemic. 
They were on screens all day long for their schooling. Many of them were checked out. Many high schoolers turned on that Zoom, and then they went right back in their bed. Even if they were on the screen, who knows how much they absorbed and if they were pleasant and engaged in their learning as opposed to a classroom environment. They were lonely in their rooms. And then right after those screens, they'll finish with school right on. They move on with those screens, with video gaming with their friends. or. And were the parents able to rise to the shift in the demands of parenting? After all, their home or they lost their job. There's a whole group of situations that they had to deal with. Did parents accommodate or modify their, their own approaches to these things such that the kids didn't fall into the slippery slope? Most of the families in my caseload were very paralyzed and very overwhelmed. First of all, remember, they were in their homes. There was more tension. We don't need to go on about it. We know in adult psychiatry there was an explosion of depression and anxiety. People start to suffer with more domestic. So parents themselves were strained in their own mental health. That confounded this. We always have very tightly watched maternal depression and its impact. Tremendous amount of research in that area. It affects the child's well-being. Now, we had an explosion and increase in psychiatric issues in adults, which then filtered into how they could parent, their ability to be aware and involved in their children. The children became more defiant as they got more glued to their screens. And every time the parent tried to approach them, there was a big no. And there was a lot of get out of my room. That's what I was hearing from the parents. And they were be beside themselves. So, no, it heavily impacted their ability to reach their child, be present, even if they were in the best of health. It assumes at one level that the parents themselves have a good, healthy baseline before this all started. And so if you have parents who aren't particularly grounded, or have their own psychiatric issues. I know someone who was an elementary school teacher, and I asked her that when they were in school, there were lots of role models, different teachers, and the kid had to learn to navigate through all these different role models. I thought that was fascinating. But when you're home, you don't. And if you have a dysfunctional family at home or a stressed family because they're not making money or whatever the issue was. The other thing about the screen time is, remember, this was the first generation, even pre-COVID, we were going to have a shorter lifespan. There was pre-COVID morbid obesity in children, addiction to electronics, pre-diabetes. In our generation, 1 in 11 Americans are diabetic. It was already known one in three will be diabetic in this generation. That was pre-COVID. Now we have a tremendous surge in post-COVID, also the physical impact of obesity, health issues, warrior. It's a confounded puzzle. There's a physical element, there's a social, emotional, and there's an educational element. It's not just my kid missed reading for a year, because we can work on that. However, the research also shows that if you haven't remediated by eighth grade, in certain areas of education, it's very hard to remediate in high school. So the middle school years were a little bit more vulnerable. Now they're in high school, those kids, that many were in seventh and eighth grade, and many learned very little to nothing. There's an educational gap. There's a psychosocial, you mentioned the social skills of having friends at this age, and that's part of growing up, and those are your memories. And going through puberty without your friends, going through puberty without being in school and all the little refinements and nuances and expectations and that whole package of things. 
young adolescents without that experience. The only, and I shouldn't say only because it's not always bad, but the characters, shall we say, with whom they could bounce off as they went through this process were their parents. Good parents, perhaps, but not enough. So when we were growing up, we relied on our friends. We called them. We said we're in trouble. I don't feel good. You know, things like that. Obviously, it was a different time with developmentally disabled children. They weren't seeing healthy, healthy children from decent households at seven or eight cutting themselves, right? So what do you do about it? I mean, a lot of people can't come to the clinic. There aren't enough. So that's what's the problem. So the problem is our services. We have not seen necessarily an increase in suicide rates as much as suicidal attempts and cuts. The emergency rooms are pounded, and there's only a limited number of beds. That area now is also very burnt out. The inpatient psychiatric hospitals, children and adolescents, services is limited. What's happened is there's a lot of, there's a significant amount more mobile crisis units and ER usage due to lack of outpatient shortage. There's a thought to start to increase services scaffolding and community-based services. And these are generalizations. We've been struggling for a long time in child psychiatry to get services. In a time like this, it's very hard. The research is recommending it. The research is supporting it. But how we implement this, the funding, the availability, and the manpower is limited. And what about the use of medications? Everybody is concerned about, well, at whatever age, and putting somebody on medications, but especially a child, especially a seven-year-old or a 10-year-old, is there a sense that if we could just give them the right medicine, they'll be okay? What you've described very eloquently, and I think very passionately and, and with great importance, is that a lot of this is psychodynamic, psychotherapy, teaching kids skills again, and that sort of thing. Our society is, I think, too infatuated with medications. If we had what we wanted, we wouldn't medicate as often. I'm worried we may be medicating sometimes prematurely, but when you have a child who's exhibiting all the symptoms of clinical depression, cutting, you move towards medication to try to keep them safe, and it does work. It has worked. It does bring them out of depression. Do we want to? Is that our first go-to? Probably not. However, when you're working front line in COVID, you hustle and you do what you can do. It seems that almost every day you hear about somebody who has attention deficit disorder. What are my concerns? And your concern, like what's most common? Is it depression? Is it anxiety disorder? Is it ego development? Is it ADD? Tell me more. It's a soup. I can't give you a list. I can't okay. prioritize it because every patient is special. Every family system is special. And how they suffer is their subjective experience. We don't judge. We help. So we can't quite say this is number one on the list in our caseload or number two because everybody's in trouble that we see. But as far as getting back to your ADHD question, sure. that's a great point. One thing that I've noticed is the schools never really relax. Their educational requirements has been carried on, EOCs carried on, children worried about college admissions, 
college admissions are very competitive. This year was a very difficult year to get into university. There was no cushion to say, we're going to give you a pass. It's called the COPE. We're going to help you out. We're not going to make you stress out about a five versus a four or whether you got into the U.S. No, that didn't happen in education. No Child Left Behind marched on. Testing marched on. The expectations marched on, which I found very quizzical because they said they were trying to do social-emotional, both in private and public schools. They said it, but they didn't do it. In my feeling, when you do it, you really help them out and you cushion it. So that's been a big challenge. And when you come to ADHD, there's a rainbow and spectrum to ADHD. Every clinician has that comfort level when they want to start medication versus use other resources prior to medication. What's happened is the testing and the demands even become more rigorous in the early childhood population. Now we're seeing first graders and kindergartners held behind if they don't read. We know developmentally you can start reading at the age of seven, and it's normal. Maybe English is a second language issue. There may be many factors. It might be just a late bloomer. What's happened is, let's say you had mild ADHD features, because there's so much pressure to perform. Kids are getting medicated earlier and more aggressively in order to perform and pass these statewide exams. That's my concern. Mike, if kids are behind in a skill, math, reading, whatever, but they're still going to face the same requirements for graduation from high school, are we going to let kids graduate with a lower sense of expectations of what they are bringing to their graduation? Should we postpone their graduation by another year? I don't know how to precisely adapt to that. Something to let them catch up? One thing I've noticed, because one of our biggest concerns is failure to thrive in the college years. We have a high attrition rate in the United States. Less than 50% of students finish college in four years. It's astonishing. I have recently started to talk about gap year. Brain matures. We know ADHD is about two years behind in maturation, but many people catch up in their 20s. They have executive functioning deficits. They have some softer aspects that even medication cannot touch. These are things that require good structure, excellent education, good nutrition, proper sleep. There's a whole host of, of other treatments for ADHD than medication. Many of these kids will just need time. If there was ever a talk of a gap year, this may be the generation that would most benefit, in my opinion. I would rather see a child healthy. Well, maybe they finished college a year later. It's really not going to make a difference in their trajectory. Many of us have had gaps in our lives or setbacks as adults, and we know if that time was properly used, it's worth it. This may be a generation that our systems of care have not introduced this concept, but maybe our mental health community could consider this. We have the autonomy to really make some good recommendations to families without a systems-based approach. Lots of things to think about. I thank you very much. I wish we had more time. Kriti Katari is a child psychiatrist in Palm Beach County, Florida, and some of her concerns regarding the effect of the pandemic on our kids. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you.